I just got back from a mission trip to Missouri. Um, we went to the New Tribes Missions Missionary Training Center. Say that three times fast. And it's in Cam Denton, Missouri. It's right on the Lake of the Ozarks. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful uh, place up there. And, and we had a couple of nights where we met with missionaries. And when we met with the missionaries, one of them he um, he read a uh, he read a, a page out of a novel and it was it was just like a page from from a novel and and so as he read it to us he asked us questions about it and, and the page made no sense to me it was like Billy went to the kitchen and opened a letter from Jane who called Billy's friend on the phone and they were excited and they ran and then like and then Charles came in. And so then he said, what does that mean to you? What, what happened in that? We're like, well, Billy got a letter, and they called somebody, and they're really excited about it. They said, okay, well, who's Billy? Well, he, he, he's the guy. He probably was William, all right? Like, I don't know who he is. Well, who is, who is Charles to Billy? Well, I, I have no, I don't, his brother? We, we were all guessing, right? Like, we had no idea. And so what he said was, this is page 149 out of a novel. It makes sense that you don't get it because you haven't, you haven't read the first 148 pages. And he says, what we do a lot of times, especially on short-term mission trips, is we preach the gospel, page 149, evangelism where we try to talk about Jesus, but they have no idea who God the Father is. They have no idea who the Creator is. They have no idea that they owe a debt, a sin debt to God. They don't understand any of it. And so the way that they teach is they do chronologically. They start from the creation, and they go through the Old Testament, and they never say the name of Jesus until He finally comes. They just say that God has promised someone to come and make this right. And so finally, when you get to Jesus, you see the need for it. And it was an eye-opening opening experience. They set up a, a fake tribe for us, and we were supposed to go in and do what the missionaries did. We were supposed to go in, and the first group was supposed to talk with them and, and find out, just get to know them, find common ground. The second group was supposed to go in and find out what their worldview was, how they filter the world, where do they believe they came from, what do they believe about God, what about death, and all these other things. And the third group was supposed to give the gospel. And so we went in and we tried to do this, and Chris Ellison said it best. He said, um, man, they sure went through a lot of trouble to make us look stupid, uh, because it was just ridiculously difficult, all right? And so when we got to the gospel, I tried to start from the beginning, but I mean, even then, there are things I take for granted that we just know, that we just understand. And, and, and so I, I said, like, like, aren't, like, so your sin, the things that you've done that have offended this God, and she says, I haven't sinned. And I said, well, hmm? what? What do you mean you haven't sinned? She says, my skin is fine. I haven't sinned. And so apparently this tribe believed, this is based off a real tribe, this tribe believed that, that your skin would be affected by some disease if you sinned. And so since her skin was clear, it was clear that she hadn't sinned. And so then I had to explain to her that, why, I had to prove to her how she had sinned. And, and I was... I had no idea what to say, right? And so later I find out what they say is from the beginning in creation, Adam and Eve were perfect in the, and they were, they were in the garden with, with the Father God. And so there was no sin. And so there was life there. There was no death there. And so once they sinned and were cast out of the garden, they live in a world of sin. Everything outside of the garden is sin. And people born outside of the garden are sinful. And so what I should have said to her was, were you born in the garden? She was 
would say, of course, no. Well, then you're sinful. Do you understand? It, it, it just blew my mind, right? Like, it's, it's a very simple concept, but at the same time blew my mind. And I don't know about you, but do you ever read your Bible and you feel like you're on page 149? Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you ever come across a passage or come across something Jesus said and you go, did I miss something here? You know what I mean? Like, where is anyone? Page 149. Anybody? Anybody read their Bible? Page 149. Thank you. Thank you for being honest. The rest of you don't read your Bible. All right? Like, because you would have raised your hand. All right. So anyway, um, Jesus referenced this story. In, in the New Testament, he referenced something in the Old Testament. And when I read it for the first time, I was like, page 149, what, Jesus? Right? Like, I was completely lost. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the Old Testament. We're going to look at this story. Then we're going to go to Jesus. And we're going to look and see what he has to say about it and how he connects it to himself. Because you understand, the whole biblical narrative, the main character, the hero, the climax of the story is Jesus. And so all of Scripture points to him. And so we're going to start there. We're going to see what Jesus has to say about it. Then we're going to go back and we're going to see Jesus through the story. Um, and so this, this has made a huge impact on my life. I hope it does for you. Turn to, to Numbers chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some Bibles under your chairs. The little paperback white ones, I'm going to refer to page numbers for you. So if you have a paperback white one, page 111, page 111, all right? Page 111, this is Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 4. Now, let me give you guys some context, because if I just start talking about it, again, I'm going, it's going to be back to page 149, all right? So this is the Israelites. They're being led by Moses, okay? And they're still going towards the promised land. Now, God has done some miraculous things at this point, okay? He led them out of Egypt. Uh, he was feeding them miraculously from the heavens, all right? Uh, he literally... If you look at the top of the page or maybe to the left, I don't know where it is in your Bible, you'll see that they were thirsty. And so God made water come out of a stone. All right. He gave them a stone water fountain. That's pretty incredible. If you look right before this verse, uh, God delivered their enemies into their hands. The enemies came out to fight them and God said, no, 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 they're yours. You win. All right. So God has been amazingly faithful up to this point. And so let's start reading in, in verse 4, and let's, let's look at this, this story together. From Mount Or they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on, in the, uh, on the way. All right, so they became impatient on the way. Now, this road that they're going, they were frustrated for two different reasons. The first reason they were frustrated was they were frustrated with the direction. The re they had to go around Edom. And if you want to look, if you look in the chapter before, you'll see why. E the, the people of Edom, they were, not letting, they were not letting them come through. They had an army, and they said, if you come through here, we will attack you. We will fight you and we'll kill you if you come through our land. So Israel does the smart thing, and they say, we'll go around, all right? And so they decide to go around. Now, here's the problem. Going around takes them away from the promised land. Now, ultimately, it's going back around and they'll get there. But they're traveling now way out of their way. So they're frustrated about the direction they're going. But they're also frustrated with the difficulty of the path they have to take. This path that they're taking, it's rocky. And there's not a lot of vegetation growing. It is not a happy place, all right? And so they're frustrated by that terrain. This week, when we were uh, up at New Tribes, one of the main things we did was we moved rocks and it sounds as much fun as it sounds like that's exactly as it was all right like we moved rocks all right and and so that was 
Yay, all right? And so one of the most frustrating things about moving the rocks was the terrain. It was frustrating to move rocks, number one. But number two, the, the just not having sure footing. Uh, there was one time we were, we were throwing a pile of rocks onto this bank uh, to, to keep erosion from happening. And so I'm standing on this, this like pile of rocks, and I pick up this rock, and I chunk it, and I just fly backwards, right? Like I was just like giving it everything I had. I was like, you know, he-man, and I threw it. And then, like, you know, whatever, gravity, whatever, had its vengeance. And then back I go, but praise God, there's a tree, and I caught it, and, and now I'm a big fan of nature. And so anyway, um, the, it was really frustrating. Like, it was already frustrating, but it was even more frustrating because of the terrain we were on. And they're feeling the same way. They're going, we're going out of our way, and this way's tough. Like, this is rough. This is not where we want to be. So let's keep reading. Look at verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So this discouragement that they were, that they were feeling led them to distrust. And they didn't trust God anymore. They didn't trust Moses anymore. I think one of the things you can learn from the example of Moses and them speaking against him is that Mm, some point in your life, if you're taking a stand for God and you're following him in the way that, that he would have you follow him, the world will hate you. And one of the things you'll also learn is that sometimes even in the church, people will uh, speak against you and they will, they will be upset with you. And the thing we have to remember is what Moses did, which is remember that God is on my side here, all right? And keep going, remain faithful. But they didn't just hate Moses there. They didn't just distrust Moses. They distrusted God. So let's, let's look at what they said. They said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They mocked God's deliverance. Think about what God did for them. Not only did he send all these plagues on Egypt, but he also parted the Red Sea, got them across, and then he, he, he drowned their enemies behind them. He, he was a pillar of, of cloud by day guiding them, a pillar of fire by night. He was providing them food from the heavens, water from rocks, all right? Like, obviously God cares. And they're mocking his deliverance. They're saying, do you, did you bring us out here to die? And I wonder, like, do you, are you in the same way? Like, do you ever mock his deliverance? Like, get caught up in things and you go, God, where are you? Do you not care about me? And completely forget what he's done for us on the cross. Completely forget his grace. Completely forget that the breath you breathe is not yours. It's borrowed. It's his. Completely forget that it's by his grace that you woke up this morning. And so I wonder if you also uh, ever mock his deliverance as they did. The second thing was that they questioned his care. Look back up uh, uh, in verse 5. They said, there is no food and no water. It's not exactly true. Um, the, when they say that there's no food, um, there wasn't a lot of vegetation for them, to, for them to make any type of bread or anything like that. And there, and there, weren't, there weren't too many uh, different animals that they could eat that were out there. And they say there's no water. God just gave them water from a rock. So maybe what's happening is that their water supply is running low and they're starting to freak out, right? And so they're questioning his care for them. And I wonder, do you ever do the same? Do you ever question God's care for you um, and think, you know, God, wh are, where are you? Why haven't you helped me with this? What, what is going on here? And that's exactly what they're doing to God, uh, all the while forgetting what he's done for them. And the third thing they do is they took his provision for granted. Look back at verse 5. And we loathe this worthless food. 
What this worthless food they're referring to is the manna that God was feeding them from heaven. Do you understand? God was literally like, I've got this taken care of. There's no food around you. I'll feed you. Bam. And he would literally drop manna on them. And they're saying it's worthless. What they mean is it's, it's not enough for us, all right? We can't make bread out of it like we want to. We can't do this with it. it, it just, it's worthless. We're not being, we're not being uh, taken care of. Our nutrition is suffering, God. And the reality is, of course, that's not true. Number one, they traveled many, 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 many miles on it, right? And number two, God provided it. Do you think God doesn't know how to read a nutrition chart on the back of a cereal box? Do you understand? Do you think God doesn't understand nutrition? Like, oh, this isn't enough? My bad, right? Like God provided for them. And I wonder in the same way, do we take his provision for us for granted? And and I never thought I would read the Bible and see materialism in the desert, but I just did, right? And I wonder if we're the same way. I want to show you guys a a picture real quick. This is um, a friend of mine went to Haiti and was doing some relief work for Haiti. And this is a woman, uh, she has children, she's a grown woman, um, and she is lying on a mattress, a bare mattress, and she's, uh, she's got her arms out and she's smiling and she's crying and she's so happy. This is the first time she's ever been on a mattress, ever in her life, ever. And I think like, we are filthy rich over here, you know? We are so taken care of. You know, so taken care of. And then there are things that come up that I want to do or, you know, maybe bills come along that I wasn't counting on or, you know, maybe babies are really expensive. You understand? And then I go, God, where are you? Are you, do you understand, God? I looked at my bank account, okay? There's, there's a minus there. Where are you? Gas prices went up. Where are, I lost my job. I've been out of work for a year. Where are you? And he's saying, are you serious? Look around. How are you questioning my provision for you? Look at all that I've given you. You're not hungry. You're taken care of. And so I wonder if we're the same way, if we let materialism come in. So have they sinned against God? Absolutely. Absolutely, they've sinned against God. So what does he do? Look at verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of, peop- many of the people of Israel died. So the, the fiery serpents, um, there's, a, uh, uh, there's an, an ancient poet named Lucian, and he talked about these, these fiery serpents. And what they called them was the dipsus, um, which is not what they're called in the modern day. This is actually a dipsus from the Amazon. Um, and you see there that they are red. Uh, they're marked with red and black, and so they're, they're fiery. But that's not why they were called fiery serpents. Um, it was, they, they said that when they, they bit you, um, their venom would make you extremely thirsty. And that's what you died with, that horrible feeling of thirst, right? They were called the thirst snake. And so God sent these snakes and bit the people of Israel, and many of them died. And you might be saying, well, hang on a second. So God does evil. I had a student this week come and talk to me, and they said, they basically said the same thing. You know, I've got some hard feelings against God, you know? You don't know what he's done to me. And, and, I, and I said, so let me get this straight. You believe that, that, that God has like one plan for you, like one will, like it's God's will, right? You know what I mean? God's will, whatever, God's will. And he's stuck with this. And so anything that happens, bad, you know, good, bad, ugly, it's all him doing it to you, you know? 
And, and I want to tell you this morning that God does not do evil. Number one, God is not pigeonholed by a singular plan. We seem to think that God has a plan, right? Like God has a plan. God has one plan. God's got plan A. There is no plan B. There's no plan C. He doesn't need it. God is in control. There's this, it's his plan, right? And so here's, here's a, a, the, the destination. Here we are. Bam. He's got this plan. That is a small, weak God, isn't it? We got to stick to the plan. I got to do this. I got to do this. But the Bible says that God can use all, can work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Why would he have to work all things together for the good of, who, of those who are called, uh, uh, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Why would he have to? If he has one plan, they're stuck. He's going to do whatever he's got to do to them. And, and it's all fate. Who cares? Like it's taken care of. But I don't think God is that. God is much, much larger than that. I believe that God does absolutely have a perfect plan. Absolutely he does. However, I believe sometimes I'm over here and I make decisions and I'm over here and then I go over here and I'm down here. But my God is so big that the Bible says that he can use all of my stupidity. Or as I like to say with one of my friends, he uses all of my garbage and he can turn it into gold. My God is that big. He's not pigeonholed. But the second thing is, he might use evil, but he never does evil. He can't. He might use the situation, but he never does evil. I want to read you a verse, Job 34, 12. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Not only does God not do evil, but he makes promises for those who are suffering. He says that he's close to the brokenhearted. He says that he's the God of all comfort. And so, and so there, there's, a, uh, there's a closeness that he promises us in our suffering, and we know he won't waste it. And so God absolutely does not do evil. In fact, this, uh, this, this might be a weird thing to think about. You might go, well, how is it not evil? They died, right? Like, they died. Well, look here in Job. That verse I just read, it says, he does not pervert justice. Their death was just. And you say, how do you know that? That's pretty simple. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. What our sin deserves is death. They got exactly what they deserved. God is not, it will never pervert justice. He will never give you what you don't, uh, what, what you don't uh, deserve. And, and, well, he will, grace, through his son. But he will never, uh, uh, he will never uh, exert any type of punishment or any type of wrath on something that doesn't deserve it. God doesn't pervert justice. It's just, that's who he is. That's what he, that's what, that's, that's what he's about. That's part of his character. And God can't, can't be anything but God. God will not pervert justice. Um, and so we see something that's, if that's not evil, if that's justice, then maybe we're going to look at this a little bit differently. And I'm going to say something that might blow your minds here, might make your nose bleed. What God did here was gracious. This was the grace of God. Let's keep reading. I'll explain. Look at verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Let's stop right there. So what did he do? By giving, by, by, by bringing those snakes, bringing those serpents to punish their sin, those remaining experienced the grace of God because he did what? He brought them to repentance. What an amazing God. He brought them to a place of repentance. And look here. Look, keep reading. It says, they came to Moses and they said, um, we have sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. 
God is so loving and so gracious here. You know what I probably would have done in that situation? I just, I just gave you water from a stone. I led you out of Egypt, all right? I'm lavishing my love on you. I'm literally feeding you from the sky. I just gave your enemies over to you. You know what? Forget you. You know what? I'm going to harden your heart so that you will never turn away from your sin. And I'm going to let you die in it. That's what I would do. You know why? Because they deserved it. That's absolutely what they deserved. Absolutely. But the grace of God intervened. And he allowed them to turn away, to see the punishment of their sin, and to turn back towards him. And look at how amazing this is. What happened? God listened to Moses' prayer. Isn't that amazing? God heard their prayers in the middle of all of that. And so let's keep going. In verse 8, God provides a way out. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. And so God says, Make a, 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 either, either a, a bronzen image uh, or in, in, of, of a serpent and put it on this pole, put it on the stake, and anyone who looks at it, they will be saved. They'll be healed and they'll be saved, right? So he provides a way out, taking literally what was killing them. And, and using it to deliver them. And let's, let's look here in verse 9. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. If you asked a, a rabbi about the story, what they would tell you is that it's not the serpent that saved them. When they looked to the serpent, it wasn't the serpent that saved them. But it was because when they looked at the serpent, they looked up and they looked towards God. They looked away from their solutions, which were none. And they look towards God. That's what saved them. And you go, Grant, that's a great story. That's seriously a great story. That's my favorite story in the Bible. I'm going to earmark it here. That is an awesome story. Serp- you got serpents. You got people like praying. You had like debt. That's Hollywood. All right? Like that, I love that story. Where is Jesus? All right? Let's look. Let's turn to John chapter 3. If you have a Bible, page 760. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Let me give you some context real quick. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. Um, Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, all right? And so he's speaking to Nicodemus, and he's trying to explain who he is and what he's come to do. And so here's what he says. He references this story that he would know, the one we just read, beginning in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. With Jesus, Numbers 21 uh, takes on, for me, a couple of new meanings. The first one, very profound. The second, I believe, still profound, however, but but very practical in the same sense. And so I want us to go back to Numbers. Let's go back to Numbers 21, and I want us to look at it with Jesus. I want us to look at it with with Jesus as the main character of this story. Uh, The first thing that it shows me, this is the profound thing that it shows me, is that Jesus is the ultimate remedy for the poison of sin. Jesus is the ultimate remedy for the poison of sin. So look at verse 5 again. They rejected him. They mocked God. They they didn't trust God. They turned away from God. They demanded of God. They have sinned against God. And you say, look, I know I've sinned against God. I don't know if God could ever forgive me. You sinned worse than them? You think that your sin isn't, isn't somewhere in there? They mocked him. They rejected him. They didn't trust him. Do you understand? 
And so all of our sin is encompassed in the people of Israel. And look at verse 6. They got what sin brings. And what does sin bring always? Death. Number one, there's a spiritual death in our sin. It's not natural to know God. We're separated from God by our sin. And also, death in our actions. When we, when we are, are, are living in our sin, when we're living in our pride and living by our anger and living by our greed and living by our lust, what does that bring? Death. It brings death in our relationships. It brings death to any purpose or meaning and any lasting joy in this life. It brings death. They were helpless. They could do nothing. What are they going to do? This, the, the, the venom comes in and they die. What do we do? We are helpless in our sin. The Bible says in, in Romans 5, 6 that at just the right time, when we were still helpless in our sin, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you understand what that means? That we, just as they, we are helpless in our sin. And so God sends the remedy. And in verse 9, God provides a remedy, salvation. And we see there in verse 7, it's for those who cry out to God. We see what they did. They, they recognize the venom. They recognize that they were dying because of the things that they did. And they said, God, help me. I don't want to live this way anymore. God, help me. I need you. And so we can call out to God. And what does it promise here in this story? When you look to the, to the, to the pole, when you look to the cross, when you look to Jesus, what? You're saved. When you look to Jesus, he takes the venom away. He takes the death out of your life, and you're saved. You're saved from yourself, and you're saved for eternity. You're saved. And then an amazing thought, and you say, how in the world is Jesus a snake? Why would Jesus be a snake? Because the very thing that poisoned them, the very thing that killed them, is what they had to look to. It's what brought them to God, what brought them to salvation. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Do you understand? God took our venom. God took what was killing us, our sin, and he made Jesus on the cross our sin. He made him that. And because of that sacrifice, we can look to Jesus and we'll be saved. We can look to Jesus and our sins will be taken away as we look to Christ um, uh, the second thing that, that this story kind of spoke to me about, and we're going to close with this, is that Jesus is the only remedy for a broken world. We live in a broken world, right? And things aren't as they should be. You see that in nature, right? You see that in hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, and all that. Of course, you see that in nature. And when, when I say we deal with the broken world, I'm not talking about just sin. But there are things that will, will frustrate us, and there are things that will discourage us. And I believe God is the remedy for that discouragement as well. Um, Things don't always work right, right? Like that's our world. Our world is broken. I think about being on this trip. We had a ton of kids get hurt. Like they were moving rocks, and so they roll a rock on their finger, right? Uh, They would throw a rock, and it would land on someone's foot, okay? Like they were getting hurt. And by the end of the week, they're like sore, and they're, you know, they've got like bandaged fingers, and they're like war wounds, right? You know how I got hurt? I walked into a door. And I hurt my knee, and I literally hobbled around. And people are going like, man, you had a, you know, like, oh, you must have been moving rocks and stuff. I did that. That must have been what hurt you. Nope. And I was sitting there talking to someone later, and I said, is that a sign of aging? That these students get hurt by rocks hitting them, and they're okay still. I get hurt by walking right? And so anyway, our world is broken and things don't always work. And so that brings what? 
It brings discouragement. I, verse four really intrigued me when it says, the people became impatient on the way. It says literally the people are discouraged along the way. And I get, I get back to thinking and, and I find myself like that. Maybe you're with me on this. I find myself, they, they were discouraged because of the direction that God was leading them and they were discouraged because of the difficulty of the path that God had led them on. And, and, and I, I asked a question to myself and I thought, is this sin? Is this sin to be discouraged like this? When did they start sinning? Was it verse 5 or was it when they were discouraged? Where in the world? And, and I came across, no, it's definitely not sin. The Apostle Paul uh, was frustrated with direction. In Romans chapter 1, um, he was speaking, uh, he wrote a letter to the people of Rome and he wanted to go there. Look, look at the language he uses. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the son that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, listen, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So he's trying to get to them. He wants to be there. But he can't. That's not the direction God has for him. For I long to see you. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged. He says, I need to see you. I don't just want to see you. I need to see you so I can be encouraged by you, by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as some of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So he is frustrated with the direction that God has him in. I wonder if that's you. you ever been, are you frustrated right now with the direction you're in? Let's keep going. He also was frustrated with the, the difficulty of the path God had for him. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 6. It's page 830 in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, um, beginning in verse 6. He says, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And so a thorn in his flesh... Now, we can argue later, and if Ron Seatron argues with me, he wins, all right? But we can argue about this later. I don't believe that this was a, a spiritual thorn. I believe this is a physical thorn in his flesh, something that he wished was gone, something that, that proved difficult for him even. And, and I wonder, do you suffer like that? Do you struggle with difficulty of the path that God has you on? Do you struggle like this? And he cried out three times. You know if the apostle Paul cried out to God three times, it wasn't, hey God, you mind removing this? You know it was just hours of prayer on his face and worship and tears asking God to remove this from him. But look at what happened. Look at what happened. Paul was struggling with his direction. He struggled with this, uh, this difficulty. But what did he do? He looked to Jesus. He looked to the cross. And look at verse 9. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul looked to Jesus, and Jesus was the remedy for his sufferings. He found purpose and meaning, and he says, look, I'm fine. I'm content in my weaknesses. I'm content in my persecution. I'm content in my pain because Christ has a purpose in it. I'm content. Jesus is not only our ultimate remedy for our sin. Jesus is our only remedy in this broken world as we face discouragement in in our directions in life, as we face discouragement at the difficulty of life. Jesus is our remedy for your sin and for your struggles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross. God, thank you, thank you, thank you for the cross. Just like the Israelites, God, our sin is so offensive and so dirty and so evil and awful. And God, you're so perfect and you're so righteous. And so God, for you to not leave us in our sin, for you to not leave us separated from you forever, because God, that's what we deserve. But God, for you to extend grace to us, to reach out to us, to make your son sin on our behalf, pour your wrath out on him so that he died, he paid our debt to you. So that now, God, as if anyone would look to the cross, If anyone would look to Christ and say, no longer will I live my way, I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to trust the Son of Man who was lifted up. I'm going to trust what he did on the cross. And I'm going to follow him. Because he raised three days later and he defeated death. I'm going to follow him. God, for some of us here, uh, we're struggling with discouragement. God, we're in the desert. Maybe, God, we, um, we've taken our eyes off of you. And, God, we're looking to ourselves, and, and our discouragement is piling on. The direction we're on right now, the path we're on right now, it's discouraging. The difficulties we're facing, it's discouraging. But, God, today, would you call us to look to the cross? Would you call us to look to your Son? And just as the Apostle Paul, we would say, I'm content. I'm content with this direction because his grace is enough for me. God, I'm content because when I'm weak in my difficulties, when I'm weak on this path that I don't understand in this path that I'm, I'm quite fearful of, when I'm weak, you're strong in me. You rescue me. You're my remedy. So God, call us for those who don't know you, who have never looked to your cross, who've never accepted your forgiveness and your gift and have followed you, would you call them today to look to you, to look to your cross for the first time? And for those of us who are discouraged and we've looked away and we're looking down and and, and our discouragement is just burying us, God, would you call us to look to your cross and find purpose and meaning and contentment and joy in our discouragement? And no longer be discouraged, but experience your joy, your peace, your hope. 
So God, we love you. Do as you will. It's in Jesus' name. We're going to stand and sing, and as we do that, we're going to be down front. If you need to look to the cross for the first time, you can come speak with us. We'd love to show you Jesus. And if you've been discouraged and you need to look to the cross, you use this time. Sing. If you want to come up here and use these stairs as an altar, if you need us to pray with you and to look to Jesus and battle this discouragement, we'd love to pray with you. But you worship during this time.